0: On this edition of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss MacBook Air overheating and undervolting, constructive criticism, and they engage in an extended discussion of Joel's management training program reading list. If you love classic books, this is the podcast you've been looking for from IT Conversations.
1: Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow.
2: I've heard of this podcast thing. I think we should get on top of this hot new trend <laughs> while it's still cool and all. Okay. Yeah. So, this week was a short week. Uh, it largely because I had a little bit of... Well, it was for me because I had a vacation thing. Uh, oh. I went to Iowa uh, with my wife. What What's the thing they say now? You're not doing it right.
3: <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> the vacation. Hawaii. Oh. Even yes. San Diego, if you're in California, it's close. Um,
2: the Caribbean, Europe, Australia. Well, this was a family. This was a family thing. This was one of those required events. It was in Des Moines. It was nice. I mean, Des uh-huh. Moines, nice. It's not a really nice uh, 50s-style architecture there. It's not a bad place. <laughs> 50s-style architecture? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound like a like a real thing, <laughs>
2: yeah. A thing? yeah okay still off the beaten track i, I like americana and I, I i like people from the midwest my wife is from the midwest they're actually very very nice people uh but one thing that happened to me while i was flying out is i'd forgotten how difficult it is to actually work on an airplane with your laptop it's pretty much impossible yeah. i guess yeah. unless you're in first class or something
3: you have to have the uh, X, uh, like the IBM X series, the really small
2: ones. Well, mine is uh, the XPS 1330, which is an ultra-portable. It's like a three-pound laptop. It's a 13-inch screen. And that should work. I, uh, well, it, it should work. But the people in front of me reclined. And i got to tell you, it's really – you're allowed to recline, right? It's a built-in feature of the airplane. But it's really hard not to resent the people who sit in front of you and decide to recline because it's you're going to work on your laptop. Yeah,
3: it's just not fair on a short flight.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, awkward, uh, but I, I, I did get to, you know, actually work on some Stack Overflow code, believe it or not, while I was on the plane. A few little minor things I checked in. Uh, All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Subversion has really good uh, offline support, which is hey, really nice to easy to appreciate that on an airplane. Have you ever heard, wait, Subversion has what? Huh? Offline, well, Subversion has a very good offline client. It does? In other words, you. yeah, yeah, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, as long as you're not trying to check anything in. Oh,
3: <laughs> but then you don't get the benefit of source code control
2: while you're disconnected. Well, yeah, that's a good point, and I think that's one of the things about the uh, distributed version controls that they sort of sort of get you on the right path. Is like they're versioning everything you do, and, and if you think about what's happening, it's like, well, why not just version every time I save the file, right, internally, and just give me like an audit rollback of every, you know, kind of like the undo buffer that's in. Uh- those. Yeah, but there's
3: there's certain points that you want to declare as like, this is a major point. I'm about to do something crazy. I may want to go back to this restore point. Sure. So you want to be able to establish that one of those particular undo points is more significant than all the little undo points.
2: Well, sure, sure. But I, I think all those little undo points can be useful at times, too. It's like in the computer, you know, computers have, like, so much space and power. It's like, why not just track everything I'm doing? Yeah. Not necessarily check it in per se, but give me, like, a local audit trail that's, like, written to disk. that's not lost. You know, because mm-hmm. Visual Studio's undo is great, but it's, like, it's only, like, per file. And if you close Visual Studio or Visual Studio crashes, you lose your undo buffers and things like that.
3: So. Absolutely. Well, while we're talking about laptops on planes, have you ever heard of undervolting? I have. You have and I do, do you, it? Not, you do uh, oh. yeah,
2: well, I'm a hardware, you know enthusiast. I thought,
3: here, I thought I had discovered something nobody else knew.
2: <laughs> no, undervolting is really cool, that's just a way um, so power usage of a, of a chip is like the square of the voltage. Uh, It's also related to speed, obviously, if you have, like, a 5 gigahertz chip, but it goes up, like, much more – it tracks much more strongly with voltage. Mm -hmm. So you can get huge power savings by reducing the voltage at which the chip runs. And overclocking – overclocking and undervolting are related because in overclocking, you typically overvolt, which means you you give it a higher peak. So the ones are higher and the zeros are lower. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I know you that's not the best technical. <laughs> well, exactly, it goes up. It goes up to eleven. Uh, but what this <laughs> does is, when you juice the chip, it's able to su- usually sustain higher clock speeds than it normally would. Uh, so the risk with undervolting is you could you could destabilize the chip at its default voltage. But Intel usually is so conservative with these things, with the settings. Yeah. Yeah. That usually, you can under or overvolt them uh, at least ten or twenty percent without too much danger. Yeah. Well, here's how I discovered this.
3: Uh, so I have a, a MacBook, uh, a little one, Air, a MacBook Air, Air, which I got because uh, the old MacBook. Well, I got it because it was sexy, but uh, but actually, I got it because the the old uh, MacBook Pro that I was using was just getting really, really hot in my lap, and it was heavy, and it just wasn't a nice way to watch. Um, video to watch, uh, either downloading movies or whatever, right? And uh, you know, like sitting in the living room. Uh, so, so I got the Air because everybody said, "Oh, cooler, lighter, smaller." Um, it was true. It was not cooler, and in fact, uh, the first phenomenon I noticed is that the videos would play for about five minutes and then just start stuttering like crazy. Like you'd get one frame per second all of a sudden, and it just the audio wouldn't keep up with the video.
2: You know, it's funny you mentioned this, because on my laptop I had podcast number one, and I was just listening to it to compare sound quality and stuff, and uh-huh. you actually talked about this, because I, I, cause oh, I right. remember you about that, and you actually did mention it on podcast one. The reason I was thinking about it, because on Twitter, Will Shipley was complaining that he has an air, and he had to blow on the back, the or on the bottom of it, to get the second CPU core to come back. Cause it was oh, bleeding. okay, okay. It, so it, I. It, have was to like a, it was like a Nintendo cartridge, where you have to blow on the cartridge before you plug it in. <laughs> I hope see I can't get Will,
3: I'm trying to find Will Shipley if, if any of you knows Will Shipley please tell him to call me because we want him to speak at our conference and I have about a thousand things to tell him and one of them is <laughs> that I have the solution to the MacBook Air problem uh, so it was the video was and then and then somebody said uh, hey check if the CPU is overheating or something and I found a little monitor that lets you put the CPU um, usage indicator in the menu bar so it shows the percentage uh, load on each CPU because it's two cores so it's like two CPUs and I started running that, and I noticed that whenever the video was stuttering, that was because one of the cores was shutting down. Uh, and then I, at first I assumed it was a faulty chip, and then I discovered that it will do that when it gets hot, because that's a pretty quick way to cool down the chip, theoretically. Uh, and so for a while, I worked on the assumption that the problem with the MacBook Air is the ventilation, because it's got its ventilation slots are right on the bottom. And the only thing that keeps the ventilation slots from being completely blocked when you put your laptop on something is is these little rubber feet, which are really thin. So if you put it on a perfectly flat surface, those ventilation slots on the bottom theoretically work, mm-hmm. but they, they just weren't, and I wasn't able to watch video. So so what I was doing is I was setting my MacBook Air up on two books with a gap in between them. So it was like standing like in between two books, kind of perilously, just so that that vent would, would have at least an inch clear below it. Uh, and then I could sort of watch video but not always. Even when I did that it would overheat. Mm-hmm. Uh and so finally I encountered this thing called Coolbook which is just a little app that some guy in Sweden wrote that's impossible to understand as a really difficult user interface that you have to sort of study and uh, it lets you t- change the voltage that the chip runs at. And it's not just one voltage, it's like multiple voltages like when you're going 1200 megahertz use this voltage and at 1400 megahertz use that voltage. And so there's a whole bunch of different settings, and the voltages are things like 1.1, I think. was The defaults were in the 1.1 area, mm-hmm. and I got it down to about 0.95. Right. And I'm pretty sure it didn't stop crashing, and what happened is that the CPU started running much, much cooler, like 75 degrees instead of 100.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, voltage, play, like I said, it goes up, I think, with the square of the yeah. voltage. So it, it has a huge – And that doesn't sound like a big difference, but it actually is.
3: Oh, it really was. And I think it'll probably, I mean, it'll make the battery last longer, not that I really care, because uh, I mostly use it at home. But uh, uh, but also, it's just shockingly cooler. And so it's kind of weird, like you said, you're right, the Intel is conservative, or I don't know if maybe it's the Mac hardware engineers that just assume, you know, different chips, you know, there's some variability in the chips, and some of them need more voltage than others as they come off the assembly line. And, That's
2: true. Uh, well... I think some of their newer chips they do actually have a, a range of voltages they'll ship at, so they don't have to throw the chips away.
3: Oh, interesting. Well, my 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 theory was that they, uh, you know, they just set it to a nice high voltage that all chips will function properly at, instead of actually adjusting to the lowest possible voltage for the particular chip that they just made, and uh, and the the net result is that you know even though they're being conservative, you know, which is worse, an overheating CPU? I mean, that's a failure too, and a <laughs> in one in one, direg- in one direction
2: right well you talked about how aesthetically pleasing the bottom of the air was and one side effect that's of true. that unfortunately yeah. is there's no ventilation oh. holes right okay. so <laughs> yep. it's sort of a challenge but i think a lot of laptops have have similar overheating issues where they don't they don't ventilate well when they're actually on a lap you know because that's where all Oh yeah the vents yeah are going the
3: vents are down well you know what the not the thinkpads The think pads the ventilation is off to the side they work great but uh uh the the um Anyway, back to this cool book thing. You run cool book, and it takes about an hour to understand the uh, documentation because I didn't know anything about undervolting. And every time I tried to read something about it, it was like electrical engineering stuff. And – uh uh, and the UI was just not intuitive, and I didn't understand what exactly I was editing and how I was controlling it when it was going to save the changes and that kind of stuff. It was just not written that well. And then you had to, like, run a separate program that tested your CPU to make sure that you hadn't lowered the voltage too much to the point at which it was unable to, I don't know, compute the square root of pi. So um, – so that was right. all sort of incomprehensible, and it took about an hour of studying and fiddling around before I finally got it to work and I got much lower voltages than it, than it shipped with, and this completely solved my problem and to test it out last night, I watched an entire the entire big lebowski on Hulu.com, and it was fine
2: <laughs> you you had to for testing you didn't really want to you no to. I didn't want to no it's <laughs> 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 but you know i
3: I did my duty and uh, it was uh, it was great uh, so wait um, but this UI is, you know, difficult to say the least. And you'd think that somebody at Intel could write an app that, you know, ran for about an hour and basically just tried lowering the voltage until it failed and then raised the voltage a little bit and just found the right voltage for every chip. And they just did this on the assembly line while these machines are being assembled. Or at the very least, make a download available uh, so customers can can run this and get their chips. Because it really does increase the battery life, lifetime. And it really does reduce the temperature.
2: Well, right. Yeah, no, they do that. It's called binning. Um, but I think it varies depending on, you know, what chips they're making, what the demand is. But mm-hmm. binning is the process by which you take a given chip and you see, well, what speed will it run at, right? Because some chips just have fewer defects and actually run, you know, better at lower voltages. I mean, there's a lot of variability, you know, what 0.45 nanometer now. It's like really, really tiny yeah. stuff. Oh, so.
3: So, so I know they did this with speed, but do did, did they do this with voltage as well?
2: Well, sure, because the two are related, like I said. I mean, if, if you have a really good chip, it can run really fast at really low voltage or really slow at really low voltage, right? Those things are related. Um, yeah. But I think what happens is if, if they're building chips at a certain you know speed, they, they may not test below that because that's like their floor. They're like, okay, if it runs at this, we don't care. That's our lowest speed or whatever. Um, I don't know if they go to the absolute floor. Um, they might on laptop chips.
3: Yeah, but uh, they, they probably
2: didn't. probably should
3: well, I mean, they, they clearly didn't in the case of the MacBook Air. And if they had, they would have increased their battery time a lot. Uh,
2: but they like to leave a lot of headroom. I mean, Yeah, they,
3: maybe. I mean, maybe I'm going to load Excel one day, and it's just going to shut down, and the computer's going to panic. And
2: well, gonna, the way you test that is – the way, historically, you always test that is you run this program called Prime95, which mm-hmm. all it does – and it has a Mac version, I'm pretty sure. All it does is calculate uh, prime numbers at, at varying sizes. And so you run two, two instances of it, one for each core. You have to run yeah. two copies of it. And that'll load it far beyond what most people will ever do to a CPU. So if it can survive dual Prime95 or... Yeah, well, five, I have a stupid
3: question now. Yeah, yes. Surely that there's, there are some instructions on the chip. I mean, what if there's just some part of the chip... Am I being crazy here? <laughs> Maybe I just really don't understand CPUs. What if there's some instruction that, that calculating prime numbers doesn't execute? Like some some Intel... Machine language well, instruction never. That's ex- not really. So some part of the chip just never light, lights up, and that particular part of the chip just happens to want more voltage than it's getting.
2: It's like well, far. that's not really the intent of the code. So the the, the the intent of the code is to make the CPU as hot as they possibly can. Oh, because heat is what triggers these failures usually. Okay, uh, so really you're just exercising a particularly. Uh, I think the floating point part of the CPU, tends to use a lot of power. (laughs) Um, Of all the programs you can run, that's one of the highest power consumption. Like, I have a little device that actually tells me how much power the CPU, the the, the PC, is consuming at the wall. Mm -hmm. And you can run all different kinds of programs and see, you know, which ones, you know, load the CPU the most, as measured by power draw. And it's really hard to beat Prime95. Okay. So... So, yeah, I'm by no means an electrical engineer, and, and I apologize to anyone listening to this who is or knows one. I, I apologize. I have a very limited sort of enthusiast understanding of how this stuff works, but I, but I have done I should, this for uh, a number of years, so I do to know what works.
3: Yeah. I do want to emphasize to anybody who's li- listening that I also misunderstood undervolting because I thought it was the opposite of overclocking, uh, which it's not. Undervolting just means less voltage. You still run at the same speed. Yeah. That's right. So the chip is actually—it's not like you're slowing down your computer in order to keep it cool. Although you can do that too if you want to. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, one thing that the um, Mac, uh, the, the MacBook Air does not ship with, which uh, is possible to turn on on the chip very trivially, is uh, when running on battery power and you don't have a lot to do, just turn off one core. So yeah. um, I think the way it ships the MacBook Air, you have I think 800. 1,000, 1,200, 1,400, and maybe 1,600 as the speeds that it will go at. But you could set it. You could give it a 600 where it will turn off one CPU and run at 1,200 or a 600 each or whatever. Right. I don't know what I'm talking about. You can make it run much slower and use much less voltage. Uh, or maybe it doesn't. No, yeah, that would use less voltage. And you can do that whenever you just don't have enough load. And I guess they're, they're probably um, – you know, I can imagine the Apple engineers thinking that they don't want to do that because that might uh, reduce the sort of the multitasking feel of the system.
2: Well, one the problem the they would have well, with this approach is some CPUs may not actually tolerate lower voltages like yours does. You know, Intel rates them a certain yeah. voltage, and there's variability, right? Plus or minus 10, 20%.
3: Yeah, well, they should 70%. test that in the uh, manufacturing process anyway. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, yeah. Will Shipley, there's your solution. Go install... Cool edit and waste a half and a half of your life, half a day of your life, configuring right.
2: it. But bear in mind, this is coming from the guy who advised us to drop the computer to fix it. So hey, that worked. Was that on podcast? <laughs> yeah, that was on the podcast. I think that was like one of the earlier first five we did. I don't remember. That computer one. is still running. I know. I'm just teasing you. I'm only kidding. So I had another. Also, thing if I you have a baby that won't stop crying. <laughs> oh no! 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 no that's not hardware that's <laughs> like software that's a totally different topic right five
3: inches off the ground <laughs> onto a padded surface padded surface
2: yes so another thing i want to talk about is i had uh, a funny thing came across so i have an ego search set up i think like a lot of people do in uh, google i think I don't know if it's google search or google blanks google blog search but it just tells me when people are talking about me yeah and, cool. that's awesome and and I, I like to do that. I don't necessarily respond to everything because that's kind of creepy if you're the guy who's always responding to everything everybody writes about you. I think there was some guy in Usenet who used to do that, and they they came up with a name for it, you know, yeah, like Godwin's Law, name? something like that. Where no, it was,
3: yeah, what the heck was his name? It was like Scrid or something. It was something that could be grapped and he used to just grab for himself.
2: Right, and then any time you invoked his name, it was like Beetlejuice. You know, he was poof, he was there. So I don't want to be that guy of showed up.
3: What's that guy's yeah. name? That was funny. He would just show up in any Usenet group anywhere.
2: You realize that when I talk about this stuff, then I have to go research it. That's why it takes me so long to do these notes for the show. But I will have the link in the notes for the show of this guy. Nice. Uh, but I did pick—I do pick up some interesting things, and I enjoy reading them. And one thing I picked up—oh gosh, I guess it was over the weekend—was uh, you'll like this one. And the title of it is "Don't Let Jeff Atwood Lead Your Web Project." Oh so yeah, Marco. It's, uh, <laughs> this guy Marco Arment who. Yep. He's the lead developer at Tumblr, which I, I like Tumblr. Tumblr's really cool. Uh, he also has some site, Instapaper. And then he was also at this web search engine, Clusty, which we actually looked at. We were researching sort of the way web search engines worked and search results. Clusty would do clustering around, like, different vectors of a term like jaguar. Like, jaguar could refer to Atari jaguar. It could refer to a jaguar of the big cat. could <laughs> refer, refer to, you know, an OS uh, uh, 10 variant. Um, it would do clustering like that. And I think Google kind of does a little bit of that now. I don't know what happened to Clusty. But it was a neat site. Uh, but what was frustrating for me about this post was that it's fine. I don't mind people criticizing me. In fact, I, you know, I, if it's good criticism, what, what we call constructive criticism, <laughs> then it's actually helpful. But I did not find Marco's post to be very constructive because there's just like nothing in it that really explains what he thinks I'm really doing wrong. I mean, he sort uh, of vaguely okay. alludes to the fact that I sort of said negative things about PHP, which I don't. Think I actually did what I was. <laughs> I get a little frustrated with with sometimes the way people interpret my posts because I wasn't really saying the PHP sucks. What I was saying is a good developer can write awesome stuff in anything, right? That that whether the language is good or not ends up being kind of secondary to whether what you've created is actually good and interesting and useful or not. Yeah, I have That's to agree. That's the important factor. Yeah. And, and I wasn't really dissing PHP. Think. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm a little frustrated. So I had a little sound clip. I got Pamela hooked up, and I want to play a little sound clip as my uh, uh, response to that. So here we go. Okay. 14 seconds.
0: Other rappers dismay Say my rhymes are sissy. Why?
1: Why? 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 Why exactly? What? Why? Be more constructive with your feedback, please.
2: Why? Why? So that's my excuse <laughs> to play. Light, of the so light of the concords. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be more constructive with your feedback. So that's Thank, that's thank you very response. much, Brit. Yes, Brit. Brit. Oh, my wife and I we we love the Concords. We're kind of actually a little bit obsessed with them now. They, they were in constant and I, you know, I'm a
3: New Zealander. So all those jokes like like when he says Brit, no, Brit. You mean Brit? No, Brit. <laughs> Cuz it's Brett, of course. With he uh, the New Zealanders say Brit.
2: Yes, lots of love for the Concords. They had a concert here, but one problem with the Bay Area is a lot of the, the cool concerts like sell out like in seconds. Right, right. And they even had a second show, and they all sold out. And, of course, they were scalped like crazy, which makes you hate the scalpers even more than you already do. And it's just unpleasant. But we didn't didn't get to see the concert. And they actually played the Google I.O. conference as well, which I was really bitter about oh. that. Yeah, Because if I had yeah. known they were playing the Google I.O. conference, I would have pulled strings to actually get – me a ticket or an invite because yeah there were a couple of fall creek people went to that
3: yeah i heard it was great i I actually heard that that was the best part of the conference
2: Uh, that just that 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 does not please me i don't like hearing (laughs) sorry but i do Uh, have i i recommend the the flight of the concords album is available on amazon mp3 uh drm free and i highly recommend it uh I, i think it's hilarious and also the show which is on hbo right flight of the concords yep uh, excellent show so but really that was just an excuse for me to play fly the concord so i i apologize marco but i, I, think, I do wish you could tell me like why i suck like what what am i doing wrong like yeah no i think it's just that you're helpful. just
3: generally an idiot um but then again <laughs> that's what that's his opinion <laughs>
2: yeah no okay. no and it's a valid opinion but it's, still, it's like hey okay, well what specifically i don't know i just i it's my analytical programmer mind. Can't let it yeah. go a little bit. You know what I mean? I, I get it on a personal level. It's like, okay, you don't like what I'm doing. That's I, fine.
3: Well, listen, if you're really searching, then search on my name and you'll find all these people complaining about how I interrupt you and I never listen to what you're saying. And I'm the idiot. And you're the wise one on the show. And that's fine because what's cool is the more – that's just going to make people listen to the podcast more. That's the way it is with podcasts. There is nothing more fun than listening to two people, one of whom you hate, one of whom you like. That's true. It doesn't matter which is which. It's just so much more fun than if you like them both or if you're – there has to be like one guy there that you just want to punch. <laughs> or you can't get emotional.
2: It's Joel. You, know, you should, you should punch Joel. Joel is the guy. It's I'm your friend. Joel. I
3: don't know. He's crazy. So, Remember in the early days we were talking about setting up some some, some deliberate conflict uh, debates just to make the show more interesting.
2: We could. Well, hopefully that's what the questions do. I mean yeah. – yeah, hopefully. Hey, did you want to talk about? Um, you had the Fog Creek Management Training Program, the reading list, because we we had yes. it on our list for a long time. Yes. And I don't have a ton of Stack Overflow stuff to talk about. I mean, we we have a lot of progress on the site, but it's just been a short week, so it's tough for me to have a lot of topics at the top of my yeah. mind. Yeah. And we didn't
3: get we didn't get a whole lot. To be honest, we did not get a whole lot of uh, recorded questions this week. Okay. So we should talk about books. Yeah, no, books are fun. We, we love books. There was one though. there was one book question. You still there? Yeah, I'm still there. Okay, I don't know. I clicked something, and then I heard a click sound and thought I might have unclicked you.
2: No, no, I'm alive.
3: Um, all right, forget that question. That's not really relevant. But let's see. The books, SMTP, uh, no, that's not what I meant.
2: Yeah, it's the Fog, Fog, Fog Creek, Creek MBA curriculum.html. Uh, Fog Creek MBA. Curriculum.html. Oh, yeah. There's here. a lot of books here. so
3: <laughs> mm. Some of them are not that uh, good. Uh, okay.
2: Maybe what what – I'm not going to read the list. What you should do is why don't you go down the list and just highlight the ones you think are interesting, and I'll make remarks as appropriate. Where the heck did this go? Should try Soft. to find it.
3: Penetrating <laughs> Program Books. Ah, here we are. Reading list, software management training program. So there'll be a link in the show notes if you're missing yes. this. And what I'm going to do is go through the list really rapidly and and highlight the great ones and the uh, the random ones. And I'll explain why some of the things that are on there are on there. Uh, I, I can do this pretty quickly. Um,
2: okay. Wait, wait, before we start, so this this the intent of this book list is to support you guys have a management training program. We do. Okay. And so this is, are these the kind of type of books like, your average programmer should read or just people with, you know, who want to ultimately run their own companies? I mean, what, what's the audience here?
3: There's a couple of goals for our management training program. The first is to take – I mean, our original goal actually was to take the kind of people that go to good schools, want to get into business, want to go get an MBA, and need to get some real-world experience before they can get their MBA. A lot of them go to management consulting for two years, and they do real drudgery and they get paid nothing, and they get treated like crap, and the drudgery they do is just stupid, but they have to do it because they want to get into business school, and the business schools need to see a couple of years of real-world experience. Plus, the management consulting firms make those jobs sound extra, extra excellent. When they're recruiting on campus, they're always like, we have offices in Paris, London, Moscow, Sydney, and what that means is you will never go to Paris, London. You'll be in Des Moines Yes, you are not going to Sydney because we have an office there. Where we don't have an office is Tulsa, and that's where you're going. Right. So the, uh, the, uh, uh, th- those programs sound really great. We thought uh, you know a lot of kids who are interested in that might be interested in something like this. What, what, what it turned out you know – we're learning slowly, but what it turns out is that the ideal candidate for our software management training program is a programmer that's been working for five to ten years and has managed to be completely oblivious to the business side of software – And really wants to move into management or start their own company. And they're just missing all this knowledge of everything that the suits do in their company. They never got it. They were allowed to just be coders. And um, so we came up with the program. It sort of started out as three years. It's now down to two years where the academic component comes from going to school to get a master's uh, in the management of technology. There are three programs in the management of technology in New York at Columbia, NYU, and Poly um, so a couple people went to Columbia. Um, the two people that are in it right now are going to Poly. They're pretty good programs. And uh, then during their work hours at Fog Creek, uh, they uh, rotate through various different responsibilities, all of which are sort of suit, suit-like suit in the company. So they'll rotate through sales, customer service, uh, QA testing, uh, program management. And uh, they're usually given various semi-management tasks to to work on.
2: And also... It's
3: a lot more experience with the software, with the not not coding side of a
2: software company. And just to support your point, I have the minority opinion that being a software developer, the way to become a a better software developer is not necessarily to, you know, do all the coding you can forever, but also to to complement those coding skills with also business skills, communication skills. So I believe even if you have no intention of like, you know, starting your own company... I think it will better you as a programmer to, to study some of the business stuff. I mean, I know it's kind of a minority opinion, but I really believe that.
3: No, you're so. probably right. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say that uh, a coder, a software developer, uh, in the first five years or so of their career, and this number may vary radically, uh, they acquire a set of programming skills that tend to sort of plateau. At some point, you're as good a coder as you're ever going to be. And... Uh, after those, and it, it may be for some people, it may be one year and they may be doing it when they're 19 because they started coding when they were 12. Uh, so for some people, it may take more than five years. You know, that obviously varies. But there is sort of a plateau at which point you sort of sit down and you write really good code. I remember after about a year of programming, I got to the point where the compiler never complained about anything I did. Like before that, it was like, how do I get the compiler to accept what I'm typing at it? Because <laughs> I would just be making syntax errors left and right. I got to the point where pretty much I didn't make syntax errors. Uh I, you know, I, I started making logic errors. And that was, that's one milestone. But, but you know, you get – obviously, as time goes on, you get better and better. And you start and, – and, and one of the things that I've noticed is once you sort of – at some point, you kind of max out in how good code you can write. Um, and then what tends to happen uh, for a lot of people, and a lot of people have reported this, and I feel the same way, is that um, you actually get wiser about what you do. You do things in a more intelligent way the first time, but you also get slower about doing them. So uh for example it'll take me might take me a week to get around writing eight lines of code but those eight lines of code that it took me a week to write are going to do what some other kid spent a week wrote 800 lines of code with 33 bugs that he had to debug on on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And so he'll wind up with, you know, hundreds of lines of code to do what my eight lines did just cuz I did it in kind of a more intelligent way but but I didn't have quite the um uh, stamina to just really bang away at it. So um so what I found is a lot of software developers they sort of hit a plateau with their coding skills, and then they start doing kind of more and more intelligent things with code, but it's kind of uh, 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 you know then that's the good thing. But on the the bad news is they sort of have less stamina for coding, so they don't write as much code, um, and so they're. Output tends to kind of level off, and that's just with the code. And so, uh, Jeff, I think what you're saying, which I agree with, is that at that point, you really need to start thinking about communication skills and business skills and econ and design skills and a whole lot of other things. uh, Well, I think
2: writing code for a long time is its own reward. It's like you write code because you love to write code. And then eventually you reach a point where you're like, you love the code enough to write as little of it as you humanly can, right? You sort of let go a little bit of writing code for the sake of writing code Cause, but because it is fun it's really fun to build stuff and that doesn't go away but you start to ask like well why am i writing this right that becomes the more important question than because we can write code and it's always amusing to me how often i'll post stuff and, and developers it's like a knee-jerk reaction every time it's like well the, the answer to this obviously is more code right like that's the answer to all problems that we have in the world is just <laughs> we just need to write more code to solve all these problems and you start to wonder like well does that really work does that really scale is that really going to solve the problem I mean that's sort of the way I look at it, and I still do love writing code. I mean I really enjoy it, uh, but I think you get a lot more perspective over time.
3: You also tend to find these like shortcuts. You're always trying to think, what's a what? How could I do this with less code, or how could I reuse some other thing that already exists as a way to do this thing? Yes,
2: exactly. So let's let's go down the list. This is a okay.
3: Great list. Here we go. Uh, some of you have read some of these books. There's the Mythical Man Month, which is kind of famous. Uh, everybody's read that, right? I mean it's really sort of the uh, it gives you a basic understanding of what it takes to get a development team to work uh, together, and, and mainly the problem that that book gets into is that adding people doesn't necessarily help <laughs> make things come on come in on time. Uh,
2: that, that is but, the one true classic book, I think. I think everyone should read it. Yeah, um, it, 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 You should just have it. It's It's sort of like the Bible of software books. I mean it was sort of the first major software book, and you owe it to yourself to read it if you haven't.
3: Yeah. I just I actually just gave it to my whole sales team to read. Um, so let's see. Don't make me think, uh, Steve Krug. That's actually one of the better books about user interface design that gets into some of the theory of user interface design rather than the practice. There's an awful lot of books that tell you, do this, don't do this, put this here, don't put that there. But underlying all of that is sort of this theory of people are malicious, stupid and bored and don't want to deal with your app and you really, and they're just not paying attention to what your app is doing and you really have to make them, you know. So uh, Steve Krog has a great book and it's really about web usability, but it applies to all, all user interface design. Uh, and uh, so that's a, that's a pretty good UI design uh, theory book. Uh, Growing a Business by Paul Hawken. This is the guy who created Smith & Hawken, which is a company that sells garden implements. Um, but he's created a couple of companies over time and he's really got a philosophy of bootstrapping a company, of, of growing slowly and cautiously uh, without using large sums of capital, without taking major risks, uh, and growing really growing a business like you would grow a tree, which is very different than the Silicon Valley model. Um, but it is the Fog Creek model of bootstrapping, so that's why that's on there. Um, now, this book, Deck is Dead, Long Live Deck, uh, there's a bunch of books on here that I just picked because there were stories of high-tech firms. Uh, you know, the origins of high-tech firms. And I, 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 when I was starting Fog Creek, I just could not get enough of these books that were just like, here's the story of some stupid company that succeeded or failed. Uh, and just the more I read about them, sort of the more I learned about, you know, what what should be happening. Um, so uh, there's a bunch of those in here, not all of which are necessarily worth reading, but but uh, some of which are. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll call those out. I'll say, you know, this is just another story when i pass through them Uh, applied cryptography second edition Um, you know probably only the first half of that book is really important Um, I think it is kind of important to understand what the algorithms are and and what they can do and can't do you should be able to write them in C (laughs) you don't have to be able to prove them you should be able to understand that factoring a prime number is what all this stuff depends on and you should be able to understand what it means to sign something to digitally sign
2: something yes no the concepts are hugely important I totally agree I mean Um, we use them all the time yeah Yeah, and uh, he has a number of follow-up books where his focus has kind of changed over time. He's sort of gotten into more of the human aspects of you know the algorithms can't save you when the people are stupid the um, interesting thing
3: is that the first edition of applied cryptography has like almost a rant in there about how we really should replace cash with digital cash because it has the following properties it's more anonymous it's more secure it's more and uh, that just makes makes you laugh and i think he completely he completely turned around on that one uh, but that said you should know what it means to be public key cryptography you should know how public key systems work you should know what signing digital signing is Uh, what hashes are for and why they work. Uh, Phil and Alex's Guide to Web Publishing, that's the one with the little guy sitting there with the dog. He really was a pioneer uh, on the internet and uh, on the web, and uh, he has a very humorous and light style of writing that made that kind of interesting, although now it's kind of a historical piece. Um, I don't really know how important it is anymore.
2: Testing. Well, control- I, I, I want to give that one a shout out because I actually bought that one because I saw people yep. talking about it, and I was surprised. You're right; it's totally outdated in terms of the actual content, but yeah. it's still a really compelling read, which surprised me. And he also pioneered the style of something that I am very ambivalent about is sort of like text interspersed with like random photos, which I well, he's a photographer. Little, well, yeah. I know, but like I, I don't know. It's just I, I like the pictures. You know what?
3: If he hadn't have done that, nobody would have
2: known who he was it, it, it works for him it works for him i will say that he, i, I love that book doing, even though
3: it's He wrote even travels with it. samantha sorry to interrupt when he wrote travels oh. with samantha on the web that was the first website you could go to where there was a person telling you a story and showing you pictures
2: right that book is worth getting it really yeah. is you can get it for nothing used and it's a really a, f- a fun read so i do recommend that one that's
3: all yeah uh, yeah the style i mean I, I sort of copied the style of putting random pictures in obviously and i think that it actually makes people Honestly, I, f- I feel like half of the success of Joel on software is using a slightly larger font and having pretty pictures. <laughs> just just make the whole experience. Okay, uh, um, uh, Sam uh, uh, Sam's book, Testing Computer Software. This is the classic book uh, of what software testers do, and uh, it is uh, a well-written and clear book. Um, survey of the field of what software testers do and if you uh, most software testers are not trained in software testing I don't know if there is such a thing as being trained in software testing and so uh, this is the book that you throw at them and they read it and they're like okay now I had know how to do my job cool uh, design for community um, uh, Derek's book is one of the only books about like how to do UI design such that communities can get created um, have you
2: read that one actually I have not I've never heard of this book actually
3: Oh uh, well, that's sort of one of the classics. Since we are doing, uh, we are designing for community. Uh, now it's a little bit. Uh, I'm trying to remember why I'm not so excited about. Yeah, I'm only sort of. I'm half-hearted excited about it. It's a half-good book. I think that that, that it doesn't really cover. It. it doesn't really touch on all the points of how to design for community, and it's a little outdated. But this is a guy that was building web communities and uh, uh, shares his experiences. So there's a lot to learn from it. Uh, you know, it's, it, let's, let's put it this way. It's not quite, you know, Clay Shirky's new book, Here Comes Everybody, right? is sort of sort of supersedes this a little bit. So, yeah, right. Uh, version control with subversion, that's just on there because if you've never encountered version control, you should understand how it works. Uh, well, just, you oh, know,
2: one alternate there is Eric Sink had a great series on source control. And, you know, this is a guy who wrote a source control system. So he knows it right inside mm-hmm. and out, which was awesome. I think he eventually published that. I got to look up how... I would almost recommend Eric's stuff as okay. just you know, here's what source control is. Here's what source control is supposed to do for you. Yeah, I, I, that was just you know, a brilliant set of writing. And but, but yeah, if
3: source control if is if important, source control, and you know about it, just ignore that. Uh, okay. Now, the non-designers design book is awesome. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's written by a designer who happens to be named Robin Williams. It's not that Robin Williams, uh, and she um, is a I think Santa Fe based graphic designer. And she's written a couple of books uh, on the general topic of uh, here's how you design stuff, and here's that. And mostly about how the page should be designed, um, but it all applies to the web, to any kind of graphic design you do. And again, it's some it's some very simple principles that, that you can apply uh, to making things look better, like just lining things up, things like things should be lined up.
2: Um, and, and this is another point where as a programmer, it's like, oh, I don't have to do any of that design stuff. Somebody else does that. I don't think it... I think as a developer, you really should know basic design principles too. Like you should know enough not to make a page that looks, you know, just like like a GoDaddy.com, for example.
3: Well, I think I think programmers are very frustrated by that because they think it's an artistic thing that they've never been taught how to do, and they don't think of themselves necessarily as being artistic or having artistic skills. And actually, the the great thing about Robin Williams is she shows you some of the underlying principles here of how to. Of, of how this stuff works in a way that is completely understandable to a programmer, because it's almost like algorithms that you follow, and right. your pages look better and things
2: look look better designed. Great book, highly recommended.
3: Um, the Pragmatic Programmer,
2: yeah. Say something classic. about that. I can't. I can't remember what that goes on in that book. Well, it, it it's just okay. a, a classic set of guidelines for for programming without you know pulling your hair out. Uh, basically like some of the classic concepts that people write blog posts about to this day, like don't repeat yourself, broken windows. You know, Andy and, and Dave, the Prague guys, were really the first people to really talk about this stuff, like in 2000. I mean, it shows you how young our craft really is. when we're talking about the people, the first people to publicize this were in the year 2000. That was like, you know, eight years ago. <laughs> yeah. And now this is considered classic material. And for good reason. Like if you read the Prague programmer, you'll be like nodding your head like every five pages. Um, it's a lot of really good collected wisdom uh, expressed in a very down to earth way. It's very complimentary to Code Complete, I think. Yeah. Um, I would recommend them, them almost side by side.
3: Yeah. Or what about the Robert Glass book, Facts and Fallacies of Software Engineering?
2: Touched oh, sure. Them, the Absolutely. Out of the Absolutely. same topics. Yep. Another great, great book.
3: Yeah. Robert Glass, Glass is somebody that, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, I hesitate to say our age, have not heard of because he's really the previous generation's uh, Jeff Atwood. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> From, and you give by, me too, uh, much oh, too, too much credit. That's way too much credit. Two previous generations, combination of 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 Joel Spolsky, Jeff Atwood, and and uh, Paul Graham, all, all put together, right? Um, I, I want to scroll back a little bit. Measuring and managing performance in organizations uh, by Robert Austin. Something that I'm a big believer in. Uh, that uh, when you try to measure people's performance, individuals' performance, uh, and you try to do these scientific experiments, where you're like, if we do this. What will be the result? The people are self-aware, unlike things that you normally do scientific experiments on.
2: Yeah, you know, machines.
3: Yeah, yeah, say machines or chemi- chemistry experiments. You try to do these chemistry experiments, and the chemicals don't know what you're doing, but the people do. And so his thesis is that when you try to measure performance in organizations in order to get better results, for example, um, you decide to start paying programmers uh, you know, for not writing, not creating bugs. And you think this will make better code. uh, Then for a very short period of time, you actually get the results that you wanted for a short period of time. But very rapidly, the people figure out how to game the system and how to get the measurements that you want while maybe doing something that is not – that is perverse for the organization. So this is – I could go on on this for hours and hours and hours. But luckily, Robert Austin already has. And this is a book that's uh, fairly academic. Um, He's a professor at Harvard Business School. Uh, and it's on a subject that it's just hard to find a lot of people that believe in this. So, <laughs> so that's a good book to read. Um, the reason I put Paul Graham, hackers, and painters. There's some good stuff in there. The best thing is why nerds are unpopular at the beginning. And I think uh, an understanding of the nerd personality type is fundamental to dealing with people in the software world. I right. think that that's that's really one of the kind of there there, there is a personality type. Uh, that is extremely common among great programmers, and understanding uh, that personality and, and putting that into context is probably the most critical thing for a person who wants to manage programmers
2: uh, to do. Right, uh, and Paul is, gets a lot of experience with that, being that he's running, you know, Y Combinator and dealing with all these young software entrepreneurs. So. Yeah, and I think
3: probably I, I, the, the the that essay is what got him his audience, which is what gets him so many so much attention of people that apply to Y Combinator.
2: Right, yeah, a lot of his early essays are really classic, so mm-hmm. definitely uh, worth reading.
3: Um, uh, let's see, competing on internet of time is just another one of those like, here's what was going on. Read some. Yeah, it's another one of those, uh, sorry, uh, history of uh, of a business kind of. Um, the, the whole concept of internet of time turned out to be false, <laughs> so maybe that book I really should delete that book. You know, there was this idea that they said of Internet time and things going fast. And, and you look how, you know, because Netscape 1 came out and then Netscape 2 came out. And you know what? Any software product that you work on, the the first few releases come out very quickly because there isn't a big installed base and a lot of backwards compatibility. You can just sort of knock things out and you can actually add features very rapidly to a new computing system, that which you just cannot do when that system is more mature. So I don't think there was anything about the Internet that made there'd be a short release cycle. I just think that was like just a complete fallacy. Right. So forget but. this.
2: Okay, we'll skip Sorry. that one. <laughs> <laughs> there,
3: there are some sort of internal, like what happened in Escape stories that are interesting. Uh, the inmates are running the asylum. Uh, Alan Cooper, uh, famous UI expert, has written a lot of books about user interface design. All of them are good. This is one of the best. He does manage to squeeze more words into fewer thoughts than anybody else I know. He really does. <sighs> Found the words in
2: there. <laughs> well, hey, did you notice that his the newer editions of About Face? There's been three versions of About Face now, and he keeps adding authors. It, it but it makes it better because it sort of dilutes some of the Cooperisms that we cool. sort of. Yeah. So I will say, get newer editions of the Cooper books, particularly About Face, because he adds authors and it really does help the book when there's more than one author. In, in his case, although Cooper is great, but there's too yeah. there's such a thing as too much Cooper. Definitely. Yeah, he's saying the
3: right things. He just you just kind of have to speed read to get them at about the right speed.
2: Yeah, it's a uh, bludgeon you with it.
3: Uh, Donald Norman, the Design of Everyday Things. He's the mother of all UI design books, and this was even before there was UI design. Right. Uh, this book, uh, The Design of Everyday Things, which I believe was renamed The Psychology of Everyday Things. Uh, that's the same book.
2: Oh, That's right. That's right. They do. And and it, that's
3: a, a, just a classic. There's nothing
2: really it, else to say about it other than it's just
3: truly a classic. So he yeah. talks about things like what makes a door work. Why, is yeah. it, why are some doors easy to go through and some doors seem to confuse people? Stuff like that that really is very similar to UI design, but he was talking about this before there was that much UI. Uh, and, uh, and so this book has examples like a clock
2: radio that's hard to use. Uh, but you know, door. that made me feel good reading that though, because I figured if I can't get software UI to work, would, then there's people who can't get door UI to work. That made <laughs> me feel a little bit better about what I was doing because I figured, okay, the software is a little harder than a door. so if you if it's hard to get a door right, imagine how hard it is to get software right with all these buttons and dialogues and things. So yep.
3: yeah. All right, the difference between God and Larry Ellison, just another insider account of uh, Oracle. How Bill Gates Fumbled fumble the Future of Microsoft, just another insider. Wait, wait, we, can't,
2: we can't just stuff. gloss over the difference between God and Larry Ellison. I, that's probably my favorite technical book title is hilarious. Yeah. The difference Larry Ellison is – I don't know if you know much about Larry Ellison, but I'll, I'll link his Wikipedia uh, article, I guess. But Larry Ellison is kind of a kind of a strange guy. I think he fancies himself like sort of a, a literally like a tech ninja. It's He's a very strange guy and, and worth reading about. He's quite a personality. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, that's all.
3: So anyway, the subtitle, the difference between God and Larry Ellison is that God doesn't think he's Larry Ellison. Get it? Ha ha. Okay. <laughs> That's actually the title of the book. But but you know what? I just put it on there because pretty much anything that was the story of a software company or an Internet company, I, I just threw in here. Yeah. Uh, similarly, How Bill Gates f- Fumbled the Future of Microsoft, a lot of insider stuff about Microsoft. I think it was taken from, from those emails that they had to submit in some uh, antitrust case. Uh, Linus Torvalds, Just for Fun, His Story About Creating Linux... On a Roll by Howard Jonas is the story of IDT, which was an early Internet service provider. And again, just another story of of an Internet startup. Uh, The First 20 Million is Already the Hardest, is Always the Hardest, is actually a novel about a fictitious uh, software company or hardware company or something in the Valley. Um, You can skip it. It's just another thing to read if you want to know how Silicon Valley works. And it's uh, in the form of a novel, which makes it in some ways more true (laughs) than a nonfiction <laughs> story, because when you're telling a fiction story, you're limited to the facts. But when you're, when you're making up a novel, you can come up with the exact facts <laughs> that you want that most closely corresponds to the general
2: truth. Right. And hey, complimentary to that, have you seen the documentary Startup.com?
3: Uh, oh, yeah, that's not a bad one.
2: Yeah, that's a that, good movie. I would add, maybe add that because that shows some of the pathology of some of the, the early Web Bubble stuff. That's just it's. It's amazing. So. It's kind of insane, but
3: I mean, you know what? I don't think that was unique to that period. I think a lot of companies start with the, those kinds, that kind of hubris, and that kind of misunderstanding, and the
2: kind of overhiring, and all but, those. But the reason, think, yeah. the reason I thought about that is because you said, you know, you couldn't make this stuff up. It seems fake. Like you're, you're watching. <laughs> this is truly a documentary. This stuff all yeah. happens to real people, and you would swear it's like a reality show where everything is sort of semi-scripted, and not really. But it's it's. It's astonishing. I'll link it in the the show notes. But
3: yeah, all right. Uh, so, random access is a story of Corel, which is a Canadian-based uh, software company that made some photo editing software for Windows before Photoshop was available for Windows, and uh, now they, they you know they bought WordPerfect and stuff. But it's just sort of the history, uh, the rise and fall of that company. It's a very hard book to find. You can get it like used in bookstores in Canada and stuff. I don't even know if it was published in the United States, so it's tricky to get. But again, it's just just another story of a software company. Showstopper by uh, G. Pascal Zachary is the story of creating uh, Windows NT version 1.0, which they called version 3.1, uh, but it was version 1.0, and it's uh, just basically the story of creating a new operating system, and it's fantastic.
2: It uh, is really good. And you know, uh, Dave Cutler, the primary architect, was mm-hmm. just this fascinating guy. I love the sections on Dave Cutler, because he's sort of the anti-Unix guy, and it's weird to me to think that there's basically only two operating systems in the world now. There's pretty much everything is either Unix or Windows right. NT-based, which is based on, I think, VMS, which is what uh, – isn't that well, right? Well, it's not based on
3: it. It's, uh, well, it's, it's, inher- it's written from scratch. A lot of the, the underlying philosophy uh, takes some things from VMS. Um, for example, the concept of objects uh, that it uses is, is from VMS. The, the concept of access control lists is from VMS. Um, but
2: uh, it really was a from-scratch operating system. Right. And is anyone even building that anymore? Do you think there will ever be another operating system in our uh, lifetime that matters? ah, Yeah, people make them all the time. Oh, that matters. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that that ends up getting significant market share. I don't know. But anyway, fantastic book, really highly recommended. Uh,
3: The Leap is uh, just a guy who made an internet company called The uh, Home Portfolio, uh, which is this website where you can find, uh, like, let's say that you're looking for a faucet for your bathroom renovation they will have all the faucets there and um it's it's just sort of you know one of the stories about one of these crazy com companies um they maxed out their credit cards they spent a lot of time talking to vcs some of the vcs were stupid some of them were smart etc cetera, etc cetera. uh okay digital hustlers what the heck is that about
2: if you can't Uma. remember it, then that's not good
3: yeah, don't don't get that one. Wait, let's see. Let's look. Uh, let's zoom in on Amazon and see what it what it says here. Living large and falling hard in Silicon Valley. Oh man! Oh, you're Silicon
2: Alley. In, you're not even in Silicon Valley.
3: It's Silicon Alley. Oh, Silicon Alley. Yeah. Okay, I have no idea. This is just another one of those books that you read to get some of the insider knowledge, and you don't have to read them all. Uh, in Search of Stupidity, uh, Rick Chapman's book. Um, it, he, uh, he wrote this great book about basically why the first generation of software companies all fell to Microsoft. So here's why Lotus fell to Microsoft, and here's why WordPerfect fell to Microsoft, and here's why Novell fell to Microsoft. And his general thesis, uh, w- which I tend to agree with, is that it wasn't that Microsoft was so smart. It's that all these companies made some critical, crucial, and easily pointed to mistake. They made, they just, There was a goof in all these companies, and Microsoft just didn't make that mistake. And and then won by default practically because they didn't make the mistake. Um, so some some funny stories about what happened, uh, m- really mostly around the first gen of PC software companies: Ashton-Tate, Novell, Lotus, that kind of stuff. Um, startup is a very uh, is an older book. It's about a company, uh, a, a Silicon Valley uh, VC-funded startup that was created uh, called Go to create a tablet computer. Before anybody knew what a tablet computer was before they even really had laptops oh. uh, and uh, it was an abject failure, but uh, again, a lot of the insider stuff what goes on in typical vC funded typical silicon valley companies e- even though it 's very old that's it's really completely contemporary in terms of you know the what goes on and and stuff
2: well you know pen and touch and stuff is one of those things that 's taken. 15, 20 years to catch on. I remember all those really early infatuations people had yeah. with pen computing. Remember that? Well, they like thought... Even now, we still don't have it.
3: The theory was that the old business people would never type because they have secretaries to type and they never learned how to type. They didn't want to type. Mm-hmm. And so Penn was supposed to alleviate that. And then there was the special, the niche of the UPS driver and right. the and the doctors walking around. But uh, mostly the theory was the older business executives. And uh, lo and behold, they retired, and the next generation knew how to type. And that was but that. But
2: you'll, you'll still meet people that are really into, like, a, there's a bunch of really cool tablet features in Vista. Like many features in Vista, almost nobody uses them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're actually pretty cool. And people who use them, like, swear by them. They love tablets. They wish every laptop was a tablet. And yeah. we're still not really there yet. So
3: anyway. And we may never be.
2: Okay, PeopleWare, enough said.
3: Best book ever. Yep, great book. I don't even think I don't think there's anybody listening (laughs) to this podcast. If you have not yet read Peopleware,
2: yes, do not pass go. Do not
3: collect two hundred dollars. Go straight to your favorite bookstore and buy it. I probably should just be first on this list because it's just the it's just the Neplu's Ultra, the ultimate Bible, the the source of all knowledge, which is that software management is about people.
2: Right, and I would also advise people to spider down the, the book list. DeMarco and Lister have written other books that are also very good. So if you like people where you think it's classic, you know, walk the list. Yeah, Read Keep some it. of their other stuff. Uh,
3: the Macintosh Way is Guy Kawasaki, one of his early books. He's written a lot of books, but this is in the early days. Uh, you know, he was the evangelist for Macintosh. And it, uh, by being an evangelist, he sort of I think he made up that word. I think pretty much it is fair to credit him with the concept of tech evangelism idea that you are uh, almost a religious leader trying to get people to adopt your religion.
2: Yep. Anybody who does any kind of evangelism, that's always the spiritual godfather is, is Kawasaki. He was really the first to do it.
3: Uh, the book is great. Uh, Microsoft Rebooted, yet another inside Microsoft book. Uh, Speeding the Net, yet another Netscape book. AOL.com, there you go. There's the story of AOL. .bomb is the story of uh, an e-commerce company. Uh, in the first dot com boom that was just sort of a hysterical laughing stock failure. Uh, <laughs> just there was a there was a time when all dot com companies were failing and some of them got written
2: up and at least they got a book out of it. I'm kind of glad I wasn't in California for that cuz I think yeah. it would have been bad. I think it was bad for most programmers. That's one thing I These don't guys, like about These guys dot bomb was interesting
3: cuz they were in Virginia or something so they didn't oh, they have, were. Yeah, they didn't even have the benefits cool. of of uh, they were actually in your hometown. They were in oh. Charlottesville,
2: um, Charlottesville, Charlottesville. Really? Yes. Okay, that's where I went to school. to the University of Virginia, so I spent some time in Charlottesville. Interesting. Maybe I'll. I'll it was a company them. called Value America, huh. and I'm
3: almost certain that it was in Charlottesville. Interesting. Yes, I will look sh- that one up. Company. Um, the new new thing, uh, was uh, the new new thing by Michael Lewis is the story of, not Netscape, but. What was next? No, maybe it was Netscape. Uh, I've, heard,
2: I've heard the title, but I don't know this book.
3: It's basically the story of Jim Clark, who created um, Silicon Graphics oh, and Netscape. Right. Jim Clark, yes. Right. Oh, I know what it was. This is uh, this was this book about uh, this company that he was starting called On, which was a failure. Right. But anyway, uh, Burn Rate is the story of uh, a New York-based uh, internet uh, entrepreneur or journalist turned entrepreneur turned journalist. Um, yet another, like, inside story of a startup that's sort of tech-related, so that's why it's on there. Um, Accidental Empires, uh, Robert Cringley is basically the great classic story of how Microsoft got to be Microsoft.
2: I love uh, Cringley. He also has two... Um videos uh revenge of the geeks oh gosh I, i've linked that's to it before but there's a video series very complimentary to this book where he talks about the history And it's about the time windows 95 was launched that's when he filmed it but i love mm-hmm. cringely he's still around he still writes his
3: uh, it's a different that's a different human but it's the same name yeah
2: it's a different person
3: yeah you're kidding they, me. yeah they switched it's like it's like uh bewitched <laughs> oh switched, man this is so uncool
2: yeah uh um, oh. Okay, I did not know that. I'm I'm disturbed. But anyway, proceed. Uh, <laughs> it was
3: Robert Cringley was originally uh, like the the rumors column uh, in the back of one of those weekly computer magazines. It was either PC Week or InfoWorld. I forget. And they they, they had this the, the rumors column, and they didn't want uh, to take you know they wanted it to appear to be anonymous. So they had this made up name Robert Cringley, and uh, uh, there was some kind of dispute over who got to keep the name and. The current one is not the same as the old one. Uh, yeah. Revolution <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah.
3: Revolution in the Valley is the History of Max. Um, good book, lots of pictures, a lot of fun.
2: Oh, and bit. just to interject, we're probably going to run out of time here. So what I would do at this point is just pick the ones that you really like in the last quarter of the list. Oh, geez, but we're having so much fun. I know, okay. but and it's an hour, so. <laughs> wow, okay. There's All a right lot on. of good books. This is the lesson, is that we okay. do love books. I mean, you, you Stack Overflow is about, okay, people don't read anymore, and yet— there's so many fantastic books, right? That you you never have time to read them all.
3: These are all good. You have to read all these. I'm sorry. Yeah, you pretty much have to go back and read all these.
2: They're all that good.
3: Well, I mean, they're all useful. They're, 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 there's only the only category I would say is that there's a handful of these that. Uh, um, that are just more, more – there's, there's a bunch of these, Let me uh, and I'll just list them. That are just more stories uh, of inside companies. Uh, there's the inside story of Ben & Jerry's, which is a great bootstrapping uh, example. Um, microservice is a made-up story, but it's captures something about the life uh, of a programmer. Um, uh, the Art of the Start, that's another Kawasaki book, so maybe you don't need all of them. Um, the Business of Software, ran a walk down Wall Street. 21 Dog Years is sort of a story of inside uh, Amazon Uh, from the trenches. Inside into it is the story of Intuit. Direct from Dell is the story of Dell. Um, Amazonia is another inside story about Amazon. The PayPal Wars is the inside story of PayPal. The Search is about Google. Uh, High Stakes No Prisoners is about um, this company, Vermeer, which was bought by Microsoft and became FrontPage.
2: Oh, yeah, FrontPage.
3: So so those are all... um, those are all like you don't have to read every single one of those, but it's kind of if, if you're doing a startup, it's nice to know what went on at other startups just to get a benchmark and get a feel for what kind of mistakes you can make and uh, make you feel less lonely. And uh, so the more of those you read, you know, the, the better, but you don't have to take them very seriously. Um, everything else here is really like a, a lot of these books uh, that I have down here are like the key introduction to a particularly important thing that you need to know about. So, for example, um, the goal uh, and critical chain are about uh, a particular way of looking at uh, the theory of constraints, which is sort of an important business concept. Um, the goal uh, talks about it in a manufacturing con- context, like how would you make a manufacturing plant, or a critical chain talks about it in a way that is actually relevant to software schedules. So, right. those two books um, are pre- pretty pretty important business concepts. Um, uh, the around ran- walk. Down Wall Street is probably the most important book you can ever read about personal investing. Uh, Crossing the Chasm is a pretty important book about marketing. Four Days with Dr. Deming is uh, just a great look into the methods of management developed by uh, uh, somebody who
2: is a guru to
3: many. Yeah, um, Deming
2: is very, very famous in business circles. Even yep. I know that name.
3: Um, the uh, And then I would skip the E-Myth Revisited is sort of important uh an important concept for entrepreneurs, the e-myth is this idea that uh, if you're a great programmer, you should be able to make a software company. Uh, and uh, it's important to realize that making a software company is not being a programmer. <laughs> it's something else. And so the e-myth revisited you know, starts with a little uh, – I don't know if it's a true or an apocryphal story about a woman who's in a pie shop and she's made a pie shop and she feels like she's an entrepreneur. But she's sweeping the floors and making pies all day and that's all she has time for. And the important thing to learn is you you can't be making the pies. You have to be making the system so that the people can make the pies so that you can scale. Right. Because if you can't scale, you're just working in your business. You're not working on your business.
2: Right. Like if you're the CEO and you spend all your time programming, that's kind of a failure mode in and of itself.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Which is a hard pill for people who love programming to swallow, but this is what I was getting at earlier as well. Uh, and then the next, uh, the next four the, –
3: the, the, uh, of, of what's left on the page here, the four most important to read um, are The Psychology of Persuasion um, by Robert Cialdini, which is universally known as just Cialdini. That's what everybody calls that book. Uh, it's called Influence, uh, and um, it's about five techniques that people use to, to uh, influence other people. And it is basically the heart of all marketing and uh, also the heart of all scams. And uh, it's important to protect yourself uh, and, and understand the, the methods that people use to get you to comply with their requests and their desires. Uh, and that's a very, very uh, uh, important book for everybody to read. Um, so that's one. I said there are four. Uh, Getting to Yes is uh, probably the best book you could ever read about negotiating. Um, uh, the Little Red Book of Selling is a great book about selling, about doing, doing sales. And if you only read one book about how to do sales um, – that it should be that uh and how to win Fl- friends and influence people uh is something i would just recommend to everybody it's a bizarre title everybody's like what how to win friends and influence people what is this some kind of goofy and it's a really really ancient book i mean it's from the it's 20s
2: the 30s 20s. Yeah, yeah yeah really long time ago
3: um but it's unbelievable i mean i give it to literally every salesperson and every software management trainee on their first day um and they read that and they say you know i thought this was going to be some kind of cheesy kind of thing but there's a reason this has been a bestseller for 80 years i mean it really is incredible how there is a science of how to win friends and influence people
2: yeah and yeah it's not gamey it's more like just like be good to the people around you <laughs> which i don't think it hurts to remind people of that uh so it's really based on just you know being yeah, it's, a good person it's, really. it's not at
3: all manipulation and it's no. not stuff you would have thought of and it's stuff that that geeks tend to be particularly bad at and they wonder why Other people are so good at making friends and and influencing people, and then you read this and you say, well, here's 17 (laughs) concrete things you can do, (laughs) specific steps you can take.
2: A, Remember People's Names. That's always a good one. It's, it's simple you, stuff. It's it's yeah. algorithmic, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, the polar opposite of, of this book would be a book like – there's all these crazy books on dating where it's like the game. It's like how to manipulate women into liking you or manipulate the opposite sex into liking you. This is not at all like that. This is, Those books are really evil <laughs> and wrong. <Yeah. laughs> this and, is not like that. This is the good spectrum of, of those kind of books, and, and you should read it for no other reason than that, actually. Yeah. You know?
3: Uh, so there we go. I guess we've gone through a lot of this. Uh, we're sort of out of time. Um, the, everything else everything else on here is some of these things like essentials of accounting. It's like, eh, you got to know how accounting works. You have to know what double-entry bookkeeping is. Um, this is one of the better books I've found that explains it in a clearer way, but if you have another one or if you already know about that, that's okay, too. It's not
2: the, the, the most superbly classic book. Right. Just branch out into whatever you're interested in. I mean, follow your interests, obviously, but I, I think my point is to cultivate interests that aren't all related around programming but you know you know right. related things the things that you know take you in slightly different directions but are still related to programming so that, that's a lot of the message that I send out on my blog for sure
3: so if I had to you know what to do I'm going to go through this little one more time and I'm just going to call out like the ones that are you know important things is if you're if you're an entrepreneur if you're starting a high tech company uh, the kind of the most important ones that you probably haven't encountered you've probably already seen some of these some of these are just filling filling you in. But uh, don't make me think really important for understanding uh, UI. Um, the Non-Designer's Design Book is really important for understanding design. Um, facts and Fallacies of Software Engineering is one of the great like cover some of the things that you probably don't know about software engineering. Um, let's see. I'm just skipping through to try to find the ones that people wear is not, not missable. Um, uh, the Secrets of Consulting, I didn't mention this earlier. That's a good one, but you can miss it. Unless you want to do consulting, if you're a software consultant. You can
2: yeah, the Weinberg books are great as well.
3: Uh, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, that's pretty much if you have to read one book on marketing. Well, no, if you have to read one book on marketing, read The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. That's probably better. And uh, Getting to Yes, because you probably do have to do negotiation. You're going to have to negotiate with people in yep. zero-sum games. And uh, Dale Carnegie.
2: Right. That's a good list. I'll definitely summarize it in the notes. So, do we have any other things we want to say before we go? About oh, okay. That was that might have been. Was that was that going to be? Is that going to be boring? Is this going to be the most boring podcast we ever had? Uh, no, me, you know. I, I find it interesting. I mean, I, I, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I find the book list very interesting. I like to read books, and I think a lot of people that read my blog like to read books, so I think it's fine. Okay. So, what
3: would be uh, you've you've read some of these, which is, uh, and and we both agreed that people wear is sort of a big highlight, but what would be your second book to tell everybody that everybody must read?
2: Well, I think Don't Make Me Think. I mean, that's that's probably my number two book of all time. So okay. if you haven't read that, definitely read that. But to me, the interesting thing about this list is the more business-oriented stuff, like how to negotiate, how to do marketing. You know, stuff that as a programmer, you know, you're not necessarily have a burning desire to learn, but right. I, I think it's very complementary to what you ultimately do. So it's about branching out. It's kind of weird. What I've discovered is
3: there's so many fields where there is one book that is so much better than all the other books in the field. And it's recognized that way, and it sells better. Uh, for example, in the field of investing, the mystical, mythical man month, there's always just one book that stands head and shoulders above all the other books in the field. And it's the obvious one to read if you want to learn about that field. And then there's about a million other little books that you can fill in your knowledge later. Um, but but the, the big classics, uh, and, I've, and I've put a lot of them on here.
2: Right. So resist the urge to just code nonstop. I mean, put down the compiler for a minute and learn about <laughs> some other aspects of of the world that are related to this universe that we code in. Uh, so I think that's the message, maybe of this particular podcast.
1: So, All Joel, right.
2: how are we, we doing on transcriptions? Are we good? Going... Transcriptions. Uh, we're good, I think. Okay. Right, excellent. I but I, I want to extend my invitation. If you want to be in the private beta, I'm not really yeah. accepting people in anymore. But if you do a little bit of transcription work, and again, it's the honor system. I'm not really going to check up on you. We're all adults. Uh, email me, and I'll be happy to invite you to the private beta. The private beta is still scheduled for this month. It's looking like it's going to be more towards the end of this month. Wait, this uh, month But it should July? still be this month. Pardon Wait me. a minute. We've got to talk about schedules next <laughs> week. <laughs> but we're yeah, out no, of we, time. We can talk about <laughs> schedules next week. That's no problem. And then... Uh, As we always do, please submit questions. I think we're a little low on questions, aren't we? Also, we want to urge people to... (laughs) Uh, You know what? Uh, Not a quick question. Think of something controversial for us to debate for next
3: week. If you've got a a controversial thing that you think me and Jeff will disagree on, uh, Mm -hmm. then then that's what I'm going to play. And what you do is you record a little MP3 or Agvorbis and uh, you email it to uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com and uh, we'll play it on the air, try to keep it under 90 seconds. Um, There's a thing called Blog Talk Radio you can use if uh, your computer is not set up uh, to record, uh, like you don't have a microphone or something. Blog Talk Radio is a phone number you can call, and it'll set you up with an MP3 you can mail us. Um, It's quite simple. Uh, Until then, we will uh, see you next week. See you next week.
0: You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky.
1: The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of The Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Joel Cherney. This is Phil Windley. I
0: hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.